Hello. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. How's it going? Hold, hold on just one second. Yeah, sure. I'm going to start recording on my end. Okay. And good. Okay. Yeah, let me turn this game off. Yeah, you can turn it down at least. How are you guys doing over there? Uh, we're doing okay. We're just kind of bored. You know? Yeah. Um, you tired there? Are you tired? I am sleepy. I mean, I didn't do anything. Today. Oh, it's exhausting not doing anything. Yeah, right? it's hard. I mean, well, yeah. so this wasn't the show we prepared. As a monthly podcast, we've been lucky. We've never really had to spike an episode or postpone it. But we were already working on an entire episode about housing and the sharing economy when we realized the whole world had changed. Toronto Mayor John Tory has declared a state of emergency, allowing him to make decisions without the approval of council for a period of 30 days. Ontario Premier Doug Ford has ordered the closure of non-essential businesses. But you probably know all that, and you're probably practicing social distancing, holding up somewhere, hopefully with people you get along with, and trying to do your part to curb the spread of the COVID-19 virus. If you're not, you really should, if not for your own sake, but for the sake of those who are most vulnerable. Me, I've been doing the same. Staying at home, except for the occasional quiet walk through an empty park, or to see what groceries are left on store shelves after a wave of panicked stockpile. I miss the Raptors, man. Oh, and, uh, and my friends too, I guess. They're cool. But we're all going through it. We are all, as the saying goes, in this together. So let's get into it. An emergency podcast for extraordinary circumstances. This is Spacing Radio. Social distancing in my Moss Park apartment using my girlfriend's clothes for sound baffling. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we speak to Spacing editor John Lawrence about what COVID-19 can teach us about resilience. Historian Adam Bunch gives us some historical context for cities dealing with pandemics. And Zara Ibrahim tells us about a new online resource people can use for just about anything virus-related. But first... Earlier this month, Councillor Josh Matlow was at an event and later discovered someone in attendance had come in contact with the virus. While he had no symptoms, following the advice of Toronto's medical officer of health, he went into self-isolation in his home, distancing himself from his own family. We asked him about the experience and his thoughts on the city dealing with this pandemic. Stand by. Glenn Bowerman speaking. Glenn, it's Josh Matlow. Hi, how's it going? 
Good, good. I'm glad I, I called just a moment ago. That was just, you know, <laughs> uh, and I couldn't hear you, but nice to, nice to speak with you. Nice to connect with you. Yeah, good to speak with you, too. Um, uh, we're recording already, if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that might have been why the uh, there's a technical glitch. I just plugged the phone in. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm talking to you. You're uh, in week two of your self-isolation. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how that happened? Of course. Um on March 5th, I was invited to visit the Beth Shalom Synagogue on Eglinton Avenue West, where they host an Out of the Cold program that supports uh, vulnerable people uh, who, uh, who live in our streets. And um, they were organizing a fundraiser that they do annually where they auction off artwork that uh, that's uh, created by their clients. So... You know, as as I often do, I'm going from event to event, meeting to meeting throughout the day. And I I, I literally drop by uh, their synagogue uh, to hold up a piece of art to promote the uh, their efforts. Uh, and um, and I was toured by a couple of individuals there. I went about I went about my business afterwards, uh, uh, and uh, and then uh, the following Monday, um, I received a call from one of those two individuals to inform me that the other had uh, had just uh, come back from uh, a conference in Washington, D.C., and had been tested positive uh, for uh, COVID-19. So uh, upon hearing that, that, that information, uh, I immediately uh, contacted uh, public health, and I uh, spoke uh, also with the medical officer of health. And uh, I was advised that uh, uh, that I should put myself into self-isolation, as as uh, you know, out of, out of an abundance of caution, uh, but uh, that it was important that I do so, uh, and so I did, and uh, that's where I've been ever since. And uh, March fifth, I mean that that's about the time where I think uh, the world, or at least uh, North America, started collectively taking this very seriously. Uh, for me personally, as a basketball fan. Uh, that uh, that was around the time that uh, Utah Jazz player Rudy Gobert was uh, a confirmed case, and everything started happening uh, very quickly after that. Uh, do you think we started taking this seriously at the uh, at the right time frame? Um, some did, many didn't at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll admit that uh, at that time, I think you know most of us were still living our lives relatively normally. That was, you know, when I went into self-isolation, I was still experiencing some stigma Mm -hmm. about it because imagine everybody, and I'd been with lots of people the weekend between when I had come in contact with that individual and when I found out about it the following Monday. So imagine all those hundreds and hundreds of people who I'd been around uh, throughout that weekend might have started wondering, like, what, what if they... You know, what, what if what if they got it because they had been uh, in my company? Right. Uh, and, you know, and I was even, you know, concerned about, uh, you know, how neighbors might respond. I was really, really concerned about um, how my daughter would be treated at school. Right. And she she was receiving some difficult questions from some of the kids and my wife as well. So, you know, it it was it even though we were all aware that this virus was around us. Um, it hadn't hit close to home for a lot of people at that point yet. When I went into self-isolation, remember the, the, the NBA hadn't shut down yet. Um, you know, the, the travel restrictions hadn't happened yet. It, the, 
the the necessary um, uh, drama of this situation hadn't really impacted people. So I don't think that most of us were fully cognizant of of how what you know how big this was at that time. Now that started changing day by day by day. And I started seeing the world change even from the vantage point in my basement. Right. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, certainly within a few days, um, anyone who wasn't taking it seriously, uh, I would suggest was either oblivious to reality or actively being irresponsible. You said something uh, I found interesting. I think that will uh, be very familiar to a lot of uh, us freelancers out here is uh, while you were in self-isolation, you said, like, get up, have a shower, uh, you know, put yeah. real pants on. Because uh, that, that is a difficulty for anyone who's worked at home. But uh, you, uh, <laughs> you yeah, I imagine you still have the business of the city to do. Uh. Absolutely. And I'm like, I think a lot about the fact that there, you know, whether it be freelancers or uh, in particular, um, I know a lot of seniors and other, you know, vulnerable people who uh, feel isolated even at the best of times. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stories uh, over the years of people who uh, struggle to maintain a quality of life uh, when, when, when they're, when they're isolated for a number of different circumstances. And, you know, so, so those of us who are able to, I think it's really important to not see this as life being paused Mm -hmm. because I know it's easy to feel that way. And it can be scary and it can, it can be stressful and, and sad. So, um, and that's all real and it's okay to say that, but life keeps going. Life doesn't stop. Right. Literally it doesn't. So it's so important to do things to live the life that you want to live, even if it's in a very contained space. So I, at first I, um, yeah, like I, I was wearing sweatpants and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of not changing my shirt and just like, well, you know, like, why would I, where am I going? <laughs> but then I, I just, I didn't feel good about how I was living. And I, I just decided, wait a sec, like I'm still actively working. I'm still having phone meetings all day. I'm in touch with my staff all day. I'm talking to constituents all day. I'm trying to send a message of encouragement to others to self-isolate if they need to and should and advise to. So I need to be who I want to be. And that's not somebody who doesn't take a shower in the morning and shave. (laughs) So, um, so I, I actually feel like I, I am a functional person, but I want to feel like one. And I, and that's been psychologically important to me to just like shower, get dressed, shave, get ready for the day, you know, get into the day. You, you bring up something interesting and like not letting your life be on pause because, uh, you know, it, it's pretty surreal. Uh, I, I'm talking to you on uh, March 18th. Uh, I think you'll be done your self-isolation in a couple of days. But uh, now we're all kind of uh, expected to, uh, you know, practice what they're calling social distancing. So yes, um, you can leave your basement, but we're all still kind of uh, expected to, you know, keep a, a reasonable distance from one another, large groups. Yes. Uh, you know, we're now in a, a kind of an emergency uh, situation in Ontario. And uh, I, I think... Uh, you know, I imagine other provinces are going to follow suit. So it, it does kind of feel like, was this real life? You know, like, do I actually have to yeah. send that email? Do I have to, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm working on a magazine. Uh, I don't know if the, there's anyone going to be at the printers uh, to, to actually print it when I'm done. So I, I hear you. I absolutely. Don't. I mean, I think for, for all of us, it's like this, this is like being in the most 
surreal dystopian science fiction movie but that's life right now and it 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 really is difficult for a lot of us to adjust to this uh, reality i think it's so helpful though and important to never lose sight of the fact that this will not be reality forever right the world will become more familiar eventually and like like any time, we should always be working on trying to make our normal a better normal. And that's why, you know, people, I would encourage to, like, keep planning for your future. Keep focusing on what you love, what you're passionate about. Um, my sister, for example, um, was about to, she's been writing a book. She finally got it, like, written and it was published and she was about to do a book launch. Well, those plans are off. So she's got to be creative about how to, you know, share her book so that people read it and perhaps more people will have more time to read books now. And so, you know, see a creative path, right? Right. I just got off the phone with a small business owner on Eglinton West in Little Jamaica who was already struggling through the Metrolinks construction. Right. Yeah. And now he's like, he's scared for a bunch of reasons. And we were just talking through like ways that he can manage his, you know, just reality along with his family. And everybody's got a story right now. I mean, everybody's, everyone's got a tough journey and this, this will not be, this will not be the things, the way things are forever. Right. I, I, I just, I, you know, no expert is suggesting that it will be, I think, first of all, we've got to be kind to each other and empathize with each other. If, if, if you own a property and you've got a tenants, give them a little break if you can. Um, if you, you know, if there's a, a, a small business somewhere and you can buy a couple of gift cards that you can use in a few months, why not? Um, if there's a, a senior or, or somebody uh, isolated in your building or you're on, on your street that could just, you know, use a phone call or just, you know, you can talk through the door and just say, hey, do you, is there something I can pick up for you? Like, these are little things that go a long way, and that's going to get us through this. Right. And in terms of an outlet for you, I mean, I, I'm sure the first couple of days you were grateful for a chance to just uh, uh, buckle down and, and go through whatever city reports might have been in front of you. But uh, and now what are you doing? Are you playing Fortnite on Twitch? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I honestly, I've been, I've been so busy that I've had even, like, I haven't had time sometimes to, like, eat lunch at normal times. So I've... I've had a series, you know, whether I'm doing something like this with you or I've uh, been on the phone uh, with, uh, with city staff working on different initiatives, many of which are related to what residents and businesses are going through with respect to the COVID-19 experience that we're going through. Mm-hmm. But there's other things that are like we don't want to stop. Like, you know, there's playground improvements, there's road safety initiatives, there's a whole bunch of things that would just be part of my regular job. Whether it be, you know, a few weeks or a few months or even a couple of years that we have to go through this, we still want all those things to happen. Like, we still want a great city. We still want great services. We still want, you know, wonderful parks. We still want our streets to be safer. So we we can't lose sight of the, of the new normal that we want to create. Right. And so I'm busy. Like, I'm always busy, even when I'm allowed, you know, to... To, to wander the streets, but uh, I, I'm just doing my 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 work and living my life from you know a very small contained space. That's how I see it. Well, Councilor Matt Lau, I want to thank you for talking to us, and uh, I, I hope you get to see your family soon. 
Um, the every day I focus on gratitude and um, the fact that in a couple of days, assuming that my health is still good, that I can go upstairs and even wash my hands and give them a hug is is something I'm really excited about. And I, I really appreciate that. And I wish you and your family well, too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye for now. Since our chat, Counselor Matlow has been able to leave social isolation, move out of the basement, and safely join the rest of his family. The term resilience has become a buzzword in city-building circles. It's a kind of ideal everyone agrees is worth striving for. But what does it mean in practice? Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence explains. Well, I think that, um, I mean, what's sort of becoming clear, and, you know, with each new day, it becomes clearer and clearer that the major source of resilience in societies is uh, the highest order of government, which is the one entity that's capable of, you know, stabilizing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, in Canada, the federal government's just announced $82 billion in stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what resilience looks like. And um, so part of what I would argue is that resilience is also the capacity to understand that those levels of government have to be able to have the resources. So constantly attacking them is overspending and, um, you know, overtaxing is, um, you know, is kind of short-sighted and it doesn't really allow us to do the things that we need to do in stress periods. So, you know, at the level of the city, um, you know, how does this land at the level of the city? And we can see where, um, you know, where there is resilience. So for example, we have a very robust public health department and it's robust because it, we have a tradition of public health in Toronto that goes back a hundred years and is still, you know, constantly under attack from one quarter or another. But that that strength, that institutional strength is super important. Um, and, you know, I think that you have, and this is certainly not unique to Toronto, but I mean, people, you know, people do pull together when things are going a little crazy. And so I think that that's, you know, that's a sort of a non-policy source of resilience. And, you know, you can see that in the way that people are trying to sort help their local businesses and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the other hand, we can see where where there's a lack of resilience. I mean, clearly, and this is, again, not just Toronto, but, you know, the private sector, small businesses are very, very vulnerable to, you know, this kind of shock to the system as are people who are working wage jobs or, you know, in part-time jobs in the hospitality industry and so on. So lots of examples of that. But, you know, when I looked at the, you know, when I looked at this whole question about resilience, one of the things that jumped out at me is that the conversation about resilience is primarily an urban conversation. And part of the reason for that is that several years ago, the Rockefeller Foundation decided to sort of bankroll resiliency officers in, you know, a hundred major cities around the world. And so they went and they hired these resiliency officers and they went through this exercise of creating resiliency strategies. And so we did that between 2017 and last summer, last June. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a sort of a preliminary look at it. And then we did these extensive consultations with, I think, 8,000 people were somehow involved in the consultation process that led to the city of Toronto resiliency strategy. 
And somehow we got a 160-page document that has not one single mention of epidemics, pandemics, infectious disease outbreaks, and so on. Right. And this is despite the fact that SARS and H1N1 are not that distant memories. So that whole resiliency exercise, I think, um, clearly leaves much to be desired and, you know, obviously missed the point. So I think one of the things that, you know, we can do is think a little bit more deeply about what resiliency actually means um, and, you know, when it gets tested, right? It's tested when there's something fast moving and dramatic, like, you know, like what we're experiencing now or, you know, a very epic storm that, you know, major power outages in the middle of the winter, that kind of thing. Something that I reflected on as you were speaking and, and upon reading your piece is uh, a lot of times uh, governments at every level and uh, of all political stripes uh, have been talking about, you know, finding efficiencies and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I think something like this really shows you that uh, there's no, uh, it's not good policy to cut the rainy day fund because it's not raining at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it should also apply to um, not just financially, but in terms of capacity, right? So, you know, we've all been reading about the number of ventilators, for example, and the number of ICU beds. Mm -hmm. And there was a, like a very jarring column in the Globe a couple of days ago showing that Canada is actually one of the lowest, has one of the lowest per capita um, uh, ICU bed um, sort of rosters of any of the major industrialized countries. Um, so, you know, so we've created a health system that operates pretty close to the bone. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a function of the fact that we, you know, we have a conversation about low taxes and about inefficient government and so on. And, um, you know, so if we're, if we have that conversation, then we have to acknowledge that at points of stress, we're not going to have enough resources. So you can't really have, you can't have both at the same time. And so I think coming out of this whole episode, you know, we'll have to have a, a better conversation about which one we choose. Are we comfortable with, with a society where everything is just, you know, is really uh, uh, just enough, but not really much more? Or do we want a society which has a bit of a buffer which may not be, you know, efficient in the way that, you know, uh, you know, a business or a retailer might want to be efficient, but it has that kind of uh, flex that allows, you know, allows things to go wrong without unduly stressing the entire system. And you can read John's series of articles about resilience and COVID-19 on our website at spacing.ca. Hello. Hi, Adam. Hi. It's Glenn. How, how are you, man? I am okay. How are you? I'm doing okay, all things considering. Yeah. Yeah. Strange time. Adam Bunch is a local historian, a professor at George Brown College, and the author of the Toronto Book of the Dead. He's researched past pandemics in Canada, and we asked him to tell us how cities dealt with previous outbreaks throughout history and what we can learn from it. You've, uh, you've written a lot about... Uh, sort of outbreaks in the past. I thought maybe you could uh, give us a little um, perspective in just telling us about uh, things like uh, the cholera epidemic uh, or the uh, Spanish flu, so-called, of uh, 1918. 
yeah, they're both uh, pretty interesting uh, stories, especially right now uh, with everything that's going on in the way uh, our lives are suddenly changing. Mm-hmm. Kind of, actually, I went to Mount Pleasant Cemetery at the very beginning of the social distancing, did some social distancing there. It almost feels kind of centering to go uh, visit sort of some of that history and realize that this isn't uh, something that's never happened before, uh, that the city and the country have been through these things before and sort of learned some lessons from it and sort of strengthened our healthcare system and our, uh, the way we respond to these things in response. Uh, yeah, and the cholera is one of the biggest ones for early, early Toronto. Uh, you know, 40 years after the town was founded, this huge pandemic swept through. And you can see its impact across Canada uh, at the time. That uh, This was a pandemic that started, uh, again, on the other side of the world, uh, near the mouth of the Ganges, uh, where you know spreads out into a long, low uh, sort of estuary of mangroves and tigers and elephants and all these dormant cholera bacteria that became activated uh, years before it would hit Canada uh, and sort of slowly started spreading up the Ganges, killing more and more people and then swept across the world. And uh, especially countries that were in the British Empire, uh, like India was at the time, Uh, England was just shipping cholera directly back from the source, picking up bilge water in the Bay of Bengal and then dumping it in the Thames. Uh, so uh, it swept across all of Europe, uh, killing uh, hundreds of thousands of people in some countries, uh, horrifying deaths, uh, and people dropping really, really quickly. Uh, it wasn't like COVID that sort of uh, builds over time and uh, takes a while to, to really hit its peak. In cholera, they're talking about uh, one person who survived talking about talked about it as if he'd been felled by an axe, just suddenly weak and couldn't stand. Uh, there are stories about masquerade balls in Paris where uh, the collar would just sweep through the room over the course of the night, the red send death. people off to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that red death story is something that really was happening uh, in Europe in the 1830s. Uh, and Canada, it was inevitable it was going to come here since... We were shipping stuff in from England all the time, new arrivals, uh, and you could sort of see it. Uh, It first hit in the summer of 1832 when the ice melted and the first sort of refugees fleeing the UK and Ireland arrived uh, first on the East Coast and at Quebec City where they disembarked. And then over the course of the next few weeks, sort of made its way up the St. Lawrence toward the Great Lakes uh, in Quebec City. I think a thousand people died in a few weeks in Montreal. Uh, they sort of braced for it. And it's at a time when we didn't know, of course, anywhere near as much as we know now about how to fight these pandemics. Uh, people or where they came have, from, right? It's the kind of miasma uh, theory of disease. Yeah, exactly. That so they didn't know it was could... being spread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in places like Montreal, they were firing cannons into the empty air, hoping that they were going to knock cholera down out of the air because they thought it was bad smells that spread it. (laughs) Uh, And in Toronto, everyone blamed the marsh uh, at Ashbridge's Bay, which is now the Portlands. They thought it was just like marsh vapors making everyone sick. Uh, And they didn't know what public health measures to bring in. So uh, the lieutenant governor couldn't do much more 
then declare a public day of uh, public uh, humiliation, fasting, and prayer, uh, and had little else to offer than that. Uh, it wasn't until uh, it came back again a couple of years later that uh, cities like Toronto started to mount a response that was a lot bigger and in some ways more effective. So in Toronto, uh, I think especially that first summer, they really didn't know what to do. They're telling people to do things like close your windows so the smell doesn't get in. Mm -hmm. uh, bizarre things like switch to wearing woolen socks instead of cotton ones. Uh, drink a lot of whiskey. Uh, but from that first summer of death where uh, in Toronto alone, uh, something like 20% of the population that didn't flee the town uh, ended up dying. Right. I've got mass graves and uh, public officials having to operate death carts. Uh, but in response to that first summer, uh, Toronto actually had been the town of York up to that point uh, and had no municipal government of its own. But they decided that it really did need a more robust response. So they, uh, largely thanks to cholera, decided to turn the town of York into the city of Toronto have uh, a municipal government with real power, which at the time was a big political flashpoint between uh, people who thought Canada should have less democracy or more democracy. They all agreed that at least to fight cholera, you needed to have officials on the ground with real power to pass bylaws and enforce them. Uh, Toronto starts getting its first sidewalk, so people aren't just tracking through the muck mm -hmm. uh, in the streets. And up until that point, it's just a very disgusting place with uh, people just throwing their uh, excrement and piss into the streets, uh, no regular garbage pickup, animals running around. People talked about just pools of green liquid in the streets, uh, and the people would just throw animal carcasses into the lake, which was their drinking water. Right. Uh, and all that starts getting fought with real measures for the first time, uh, thanks to that cholera epidemic. Uh, and we have that municipal government to this day largely founded in the first place to fight uh, the pandemics uh, that sweep through every few decades or so. Well, that's a silver lining in a way. I mean, for people who live and enjoy, <laughs> live in and enjoy Toronto as a city. Yeah, it is uh, nice to know that we've learned some lessons uh, and have a more robust response. You can sort of see the same thing uh, when we start digging into the story of the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. uh, which happens you know, during the First World War, so a good 80 years after cholera had swept through the city, uh, that uh, the country learned some more hard lessons during that time, which are uh, ones that are hopefully going to help us this time around. And the Spanish flu was uh, killing tens of millions of people around the world. They say maybe 50 to 100 million people. Like mm -hmm. potentially as much as 5% of the world's population uh, and getting spread around by soldiers uh, returning from the front. Uh, and Spanish flu was a strange one because uh, it was more likely to kill people in their 20s and their 30s than old people or young people. Uh, so those soldiers were particularly vulnerable. Uh, and people on the front lines of healthcare and stuff were easily followed falling ill and dying as a result of it. Right. And when you sort of look through how it spread through Canada in particular, uh, you see a lot of 
people learning the value of social distancing uh, and of a robust sort of government response to things, uh, that there was an initial outbreak elsewhere in the world in the spring of 1918, uh, but it came back in the fall with a new, more powerful, mutated strand, which is when it really hit Canada. And it all started, they think, uh, with a conference in Quebec uh, that thankfully, hopefully during this pandemic would have been canceled. Right. Uh, but in, uh, in 1918, they didn't realize it until it was too late. There was a Catholic conference where some priests from the States came up uh, and were infected and spread it through the conference. And all of these priests uh, who are Canadians headed back home from that conference to their congregations, infected with the Spanish flu, uh, spreading it through communion to thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and uh, you know, within a month of that, 50 people a day are dying in Toronto. Montreal's been hard hit at Quebec City uh, and sort of sweeps west from there. Uh, and you can see the kind of measures that people were bringing in were the kind that we're seeing again today, but they were a bit more slower uh, to enact them the first time around. So uh, cities all across Canada are now canceling conferences and uh, shutting down theaters and cinemas and uh, the same sort of thing we're seeing today, a hundred years ago. Uh, but in a place like Toronto, it took them a little while, uh, uh, and everybody's all caught up with the war at the time. Right. So at first, you know, the first cases hit Toronto in late September, and the authorities were really playing down the threat, uh, saying it was just just a rough flu and not much more. You didn't have to change your habits. Uh, and within 10 days from that point, you have uh, real deaths starting to pile up and the city becoming overwhelmed, having to turn hotels into uh, makeshift hospitals and pulling in volunteers. Also, so many people were away at war or mm -hmm. had died during the war that they were already in such a weakened position. Uh, but those social distancing measures clearly did help a bit, uh, but were hum hamstrung at the same time by uh, sort of naive response and distraction from the war. So people say the federal government was particularly ineffective. Uh, so while city governments were banning uh, big public gatherings and shutting down theaters, uh, in Alberta, it was illegal to go outside without wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. uh, in like Winnipeg, banned spitting, all these sort of municipal reactions. The federal government was spreading it pretty much actively. Uh, they were so much more concerned with the war that they didn't stop sending troops across the country uh, and back and forth from the front. Uh, so they were putting soldiers on ships bound for Europe, knowing they were infected with the flu. Right. Uh, that would then spread through wildfires. So there's stories of ships losing dozens and dozens of soldiers over the journey across the Atlantic, uh, arriving you know, with many fewer than they left with. Uh, and one train in particular, it was notorious, that traveled west across Canada, uh, filled both with soldiers returning from Europe who were infected with the disease and new fresh troops who were heading off uh, west to go to Russia and fight on that front near the end of the war. Uh, and then you can sort of trace outbreaks of the pandemic along the route of that train as it passed through Saskatchewan and Alberta. And 
started infecting more and more people. Uh, so the federal government was actually actively helping to spread it instead of helping to quash it, which seems like uh, something we've learned a bit better uh, from today. Right. And, uh, and it was all made worse by the fact that it was right at the end of the war. So it's hard to even wrap your mind around how devastating it would have been, given how hard, you know, just the last week or two have been and how disorienting it is. Uh, when Canada was dealing with the Spanish flu, which would end up killing 50,000 people, mm-hmm. so almost as many as the war itself, uh, but they were just, they'd just gone through the war, this worst war in the history of the world, and they were right within, you know, they could see the light at the end of the tunnel when the first cases start cropping up in Canada, it's September, 1918, the war is going to be over in just two months. Uh, But now this whole new wave of death starts hitting and hitting people over here in their homes, as opposed to just over there in Europe. Uh, So Adam, it it sounds to me like, uh, you know, out of these absolute horrors in in our history uh, have come some important institutions that we have to this day, not just, as you said, uh, the the existence of Toronto as a government, uh, but uh, you know different kinds of health boards and approaches to that. Yeah, you can actually see uh, that the government of the time, Robert Borden's conservative government that was uh, in power through the war, uh, was sort of so mortified by the ineffective response and uh, had taken a real public relations hit. As a result, that in 1919, as the disease. Uh, there's still a couple of waves to go after that big one in the fall of 1918, but as people are sort of recovering, uh, they actually found the Federal Department of Health, that's Health Canada today, whose roots go back very specifically to the Spanish flu. Uh, and people, especially out west on the prairies, uh, where they were so hard hit during uh, November of 1918, uh, they start talking about socialized medicine as maybe being something Canada needs to do. Uh, and that uh, free healthcare might be something the country needs if this kind of thing uh, ever happens again, which is something we're very glad they learned a uh, hundred years ago, so that we're in a better position today. So, as a student of history, when things like the coronavirus uh, happen, uh, this global pandemic that's you know obviously scary for everyone, do you take some comfort in taking the long view and in, in knowing these anecdotes and and how uh, you know out of a just a terrible struggle, um, there, there was some constructive developments. Yeah, I think it helps a bit. In some ways, it's maybe not that helpful to see <laughs> uh, the truly terrible things can happen. Uh-huh. Uh, I was reading an article from the National Post from a couple of years ago uh, that was saying people in 1918 thought it couldn't happen. Uh, right. uh, but even though they thought they were on the cutting edge of medicine, uh, a whole lot of people still died. Uh, but you can also trace those lessons. You know, they discovered germ theory uh, as a result of having suffered through cholera, and they founded Health Canada as a result of the Spanish flu. So we're in a much better position uh, as a result of of these things. And it's somewhat reassuring to be able to look back and see that people did make it through those times, uh, and to see the direct lessons that people people learned as a result. You can see the people learning that social distancing is important a hundred years ago and that, you know, hopefully we're going to learn lessons this time through too, uh, that we will hopefully come out of it having suffered and, uh, 
uh, had a potentially dismal period in our lives, uh, but we're hopefully going to learn lessons again because that's what societies do and uh, hopefully come out of it stronger and in an even better position to tackle it next time it comes along uh, and hopefully build a stronger, you know, more equitable communal culture uh, coming out of it in other ways too. Well, Adam, it's a, it's a slim ray of sunlight that you've given me, but I'm going to hold on to it with everything that I have. Yeah, it's a hard time. Uh, the one that, yeah, knowing a bit about the past hopefully helps a tiny little bit. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, stay safe. Finally, Zara Ibrahim is a city builder and organizer who started crowdsourcing a list of resources for people in Toronto to deal with COVID-19 and the isolation that comes with social distancing. Everything from what to do if you're worried you have the virus to how to find people online to hang out with. People were happy to help with the list, and it's now a handy tool for weathering the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I um, I was just sharing with some some friends over quarantinis the other night, <laughs> um, which is just a group of friends trying to make sure we connect uh, and have a drink together now and then. But um, I, I was sharing that, you know, I as given sort of my role um, between institutions and neighborhoods and residents, I found that as this started to as the the reality of social distancing started to emerge. People across all platforms, email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, phone calls, were telling me about these incredible resources. Um, And so I was just getting this influx of all of these resources. Um, Things like where to go if you don't have any money and you need $100. Like There's a whole bunch circulating, but there's these really acute ones that are supporting people who are in crisis right now um, and you know, can't go stock up on food because the food banks are struggling to keep up and we should all be giving to food banks um, and just need cash in their pocket uh, to be able to navigate the world right now. And so I was feeling this sort of huge sort of tsunami of information coming to me and was feeling actually like a a palpable sense of stress that it was just sitting in my inbox. Um, And so what I decided to do was just take all of the information that was coming my way and put it into a Google Doc um, inviting anyone who had information or wanted to help me to join. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the outpouring of information and support has just been overwhelming. I'm looking at the document right now and there's about 66 people actively using it right this minute. Right. Um, and that goes, you know, I've checked at 11 PM and that number doesn't move. Um, and so what it's turned into is a really beautiful collaborative destination for people who really want to help and have capital, whether that be, you know, time, energy, whatever it is, extra food, people who need aid right now. And those groups can can sort of overlap. You know, we all sort of need support. You know, we need love and support from our community. You might not need financial aid at this moment, but might need someone to talk to. Absolutely. Um, so it's so, so that's been really beautiful. Um, free activities that are happening. So there's so much good stuff. And I've just been trying to curate things that either I or people in my network have actually done um, that have really brought us some levity and some lightness. 
mm-hmm. uh, discounted classes, and then just a list of fun activities like you know that you can do, like quarantinis with your friends. Um, doesn't have to be alcoholic; can be tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a re- and then a, a list of sort of um, folks across the country who have built similar things, just so we can all be learning from each other. And what's been really exciting has been that this very enterprising um, new friend on Twitter decided to take the spreadsheet and build a web app, uh, which is going to be live probably by the end of the day, um, which just makes it a little more user-friendly for folks who are coming to actually search this database, um, who are not coming to populate it, but are coming to search it. And so by the end of the day, we should have a live web app that you can easily search. You can type in fitness and you'll get all the fitness stuff. You can type in financial support. You'll get all the financial aid um, links. And yeah, it's, it's growing by the minute. What kind of resources have people been uh, looking for in particular? Um, there has been a huge amount of folks who are um, be- like it's so beautiful folks who are like, I feel safe, healthy, and like I have capacity to volunteer. So a lot of people are looking for who they can go deliver groceries to, who c- they can, you know, hop on the phone and talk to. Um, there's been a ton and a ton of uh, resources for artists. Um, musicians, creative people whose work dried up the day that social distancing was strongly encouraged and our our city started to go closer and closer to sort of shuttered. Um, So there's a huge amount of sort of creative practitioners who rely on gigs, not the gig economy, but actual gigs, you know, at bars and and events. And uh, there's been an outpouring of um, platforms that are raising money for artists of all different backgrounds uh, that have been just there's been that's been sort of the hugest, the the, the most significant influx of information. Um, an example was uh, Glad Day set up an emergency fund to help LGBTQ2S artists. It's a bookstore on Church Street. Yeah, and anyone who who sort of lives in a tip based uh, work environment. Um, and so that was one of the first ones that I saw that emerged. But it, but there's now there's since been uh, many funds that are more directed at specific uh, population groups that are looking for financial aid right now. So are you still looking for people to help populate this list? And if so, how, how can they uh, get involved? Um, anyone can find me on Twitter. I'm Zara E-B, um, Z-A-H-R-A-E-B. You can find me on Twitter and send me your email address and I'll add you as a collaborator, uh, which means that if you're hearing anything, you can add to the list. Don't worry about how to format it. Like, you know, we've got a whole bunch of folks in there who are making sure it's all tagged and coded. Um, so it's easy to search. Uh, and or you can just send me a link on Twitter if you don't have capacity if, or if something has been really helpful to you. If there's been a fitness class you really like or a yoga class or meditation or um, an air space or an organization that really has an acute need that you want to draw attention to, just send it to me on Twitter and I'll make sure to get it on the sheet. Okay. And uh, when that website's up and running, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the podcast as well. Oh, that'd be amazing. Thank you so much for talking about this. I, it's um, Really amazing to see how people's hearts are opening right now. And that's been really, really inspiring and um, nourishing to be a part of. All right. Well, Zara, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. We'll talk to you soon, Glenn. Okay. All the best. That list is now an app, which you can find by going to covidto.glideapp.io. That's C-O-V-I-D dot G-L-I-D-E-A-P-P dot I-O.
For the foreseeable future, Toronto and cities all over Canada will be dealing with this crisis. So, we'll continue to find you stories about life in those cities, how governments and people are managing, and any insights we can glean from the pandemic. If there's anything you'd like to hear, anything you'd appreciate us digging into, or if you have a story about city life during COVID-19, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. But that's it for now. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music. And you can find that music on SoundCloud at track82. It's all spelled out. Visit our website at spacing.ca. There will be a lot of new content on there to help keep you informed. The city store, unfortunately, is closed, like a lot of independent businesses for the time being. If you'd like, the best way to support Spacing at the moment is to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, and you can do that at spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, stay safe, be kind to one another, and for God's sakes, don't hoard the toilet paper. Cheers. Cheers.